Greetings to all of God's people. This is again Mordecai Joseph. That in the beginning of the tape, and after that we went into the doctrine of uh, heaven and hell, just for the benefit of those who are listening, uh, that may be uh, either from uh, uh, our tradition, so to speak, as some call it, and others who are not, who may be also from the Jewish community, and they are listening to the same, and therefore they might need uh, an explanation of the concepts, that is the biblical teachings of what happens to the dead. Uh, is it heaven or is it hell? And so for their benefit I injected that uh, information there. So we're back now to Genesis chapter 7 and we begin to read here in verse 7, then the Lord that is Jehovah said to Noah, come into the ark you and all your household because I have seen that you are righteous tzaddik in Hebrew before me in this generation. Uh, this word tzaddik or uh, righteous developed uh, throughout the ages until finally in the, in the past many centuries it took a special connotation uh, earlier in the Bible and later on is specific in, uh, in Eastern European uh, Jewish communities where the word tzaddik or the tzaddik as they call it in, uh, in the communities that come from Eastern Europe they speak about a person that is more than just a righteous man, but a very, very unique person. And generally the concept is that there are only very, very few, and sometimes maybe only one in one generation as time goes by. One in a very, very unique situation in the sense of uh, total righteousness with God. Uh, there are those who are righteous in general, uh, speaking about uh, those who obey the laws of God, and then th there is that particular specific uh, righteous man. And really, in the Bible, the major concept of the righteous, there is one that is called not just righteous, but the righteous. That one in particular is applied to the Redeemer of Israel, to the Messiah. And uh, uh, in the book of Isaiah, you see a reference to that several times. And God is referring to his servant, either Jacob and then in specific to the Redeemer of Israel as HaTzadik, the Righteous One. And so, uh, the concept of uh, Tzadik here about Noah has to do more than just a mere obedience to the law of God, but a very, very unique person. He was a very, as it said earlier, that he was perfect in his generations. He walked with God wholeheartedly, a very, very unique person, just like David uh, was a very unique person in the sight of God, and then he measured all the kings that came after him by the righteousness of their father David. Either they walked in his ways, or they did not. And in contrast, he measured all the unrighteousness of the kings of Israel by the example of unrighteousness, and that was Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. And so, when he talks about Noah being righteous, before me in this generation, he speaks about a very, very unique person who was perfectly, perfectly before God, a very honest person, totally in contrast to all those who were around him that were not, obviously. And this man was a very righteous person and an example that later on God used in the book of Ezekiel where he talks about three men in terms of the nation of Israel where he said that Judah 
in specifically speaking about Judah at the time, because uh, Israel was already gone into captivity, but he's saying to Ezekiel that Judah is so corrupt nowadays that they cannot, they cannot have any help from anyone. And even, even he said, if these three men were alive today, and he mentioned uh, three very unique men in the Bible that were uh, highly righteous men, and very, very unique cases. And so he mentioned, if Daniel and Noah and Job, I think last time I talked about this uh, subject, I mentioned Moses by mistake, and not that Moses was not righteous, but God mentioned very specific uh, men in terms of righteousness. And uh, I don't know why he mentioned those three, not others. Uh, of course, there were others also, Abraham and many others. But he mentioned Noah as one of the very righteous men. And he said, even if these three men were alive before me today, and they were to intercede for this generation, they would not be able to do any of that. They will be able to deliver their own soul, but nobody else. And so Noah obviously was a very, very unique case. And so God is telling him in person that you are a righteous man before me in this generation. And he became an example to all those who followed him, a man of righteousness. As later on in the New Testament, he's called a preacher of righteousness. And so he says in verse 2, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal. We carried that uh, earlier. And when he says clean animal, the word for clean in Hebrew is tahor or tehorah. That's in the feminine, tehorah. And it doesn't mean clean in the sense of, uh, well, my car is clean or uh, my clothes are clean or I'm clean and shaven. But this is speaking about the concept of pure, purity, which is something totally different. That has to do more with, uh, in terms of righteousness, purity of heart. In other words, it does not have any elements of impurity, which is in spiritual terms, unrighteousness, sins and iniquities, and in terms of, let's say, when we talk about metals, we talk about pure gold. In other words, it doesn't have any alloys in it that contaminate, that remove the purity of the gold and makes it a mixed uh, metal. And so, when it talks about animals, here he says, bring me pure animals. And we might speculate about the concept of purity in this case. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind, and that's my own speculation, and I think it has some basis there in reality, and that is the clean animals, that is the pure animals, they eat grass. They do not eat, they are not scavengers. They don't eat dead animals. As a matter of birds, uh, which they may eat uh, live or dead, and uh, some, uh, let's say the vultures, they wait until uh, something is dead, then they eat it. And then you have a different type of, uh, like the hyena, they eat uh, dead animals. And uh, you have all the, uh, the crustaceous uh, creatures in, in the bottom of the ocean. They're called the filters of the ocean. They eat all the dead things. In other words, in doing so, they ingest a lot of uh, dead meat that has bacteria in it and virus and all kind of things that can cause diseases. And I guess they're not affected by it. But those who eat them uh, may be affected by it. And so you see the concept there that God is in, injecting. And later on, he specified that in a very, very clean ma manner in the book of the law, 
when he gave his nation, in Leviticus uh, 11 and Deuteronomy 14, where he gave them in specific about, uh, that is, information about the animals and the birds that they can eat and those that they cannot eat. And he told them, those who are pure, in order to be holy like I am holy, you too are going to be holy by eating holy things. In other words, pure things. That's what holiness is in essence. When you inject sin and transgression and iniquity into your mind, you are no longer holy. And when you inject poison into your body, you are no, your body is no longer holy. And yet God demanded that you be holy as I am holy, therefore you don't eat all those things that he said are an abomination to me. That is, the animals and the birds, and spiritually speaking, uh, all kind of things that we people do that is not clean in the sight of God. And so you can see the concept there that when he told him bring a clean animal, that is pure animal, it goes far beyond uh, the concept of just uh, clean. And uh, some people think, well, only when Israel came to Mount Sinai, that's when they received the, the Levitical uh, ritualistic laws, and that's good for the Jews, but we don't need to do it, and especially those who call themselves Christians. And worse than that, those who used to have that knowledge and understanding and now go back to the old ways, as uh, the proverb uh, that was quoted by uh, uh, one of the apostles, I believe it was James, where he says, well, the, the dog that went back to his own vomit and the sow to the mire from which it was cleansed. Uh, so people who did know better, uh, they lost that knowledge and understanding, and apparently that's exactly what was happening time and again and again and again in the history of men, from the days of Adam, where the knowledge was there, but the clean and unclean, and in the days of uh, Noah, he obviously knew exactly what it meant, clean and unclean, uh, God didn't have to explain that to him, and uh, so forth. And so the righteousness of Noah uh, was something that was being passed on from Adam, Adam was given knowledge, truth, understanding, laws uh, by God so he could live righteously. And all those who lived very long, very long life, they passed on that information and that knowledge from generation. Well, in that sense, you cannot even say from generation to generation because they lived uh, almost a thousand years. So for generations, there were being, uh, that knowledge was being passed on. And when you think about it, Noah was born, as I mentioned earlier in the segment on chronology, and men's history, uh, Noah was born in the year 1056, and the son of Adam, Seth, died in the year 1042. So it's only about uh, 14 years later, after Seth died, that Noah was born. Which means that the son of Seth, which was Enos, who died in 1125, was able, and Noah was able, to communicate with the grandson of Adam, and directly received knowledge from him, the knowledge of God. So you can see almost from person to person, from Adam, from God himself, that Noah was able to receive knowledge and understanding by the law of God, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, and so forth. So we're not talking about uh, an ignorant man here. He could not be righteous if he had no righteousness. And what is righteousness? Only the law can define righteousness. Some people think that the law was given in Mount Sinai, and it is a great ignorance on the part of many, and even in the Jewish community, who think that the law was given in Sinai, and in the days of Noah there were only very few laws, and therefore all the nations are to abide by the law of Noah, uh, they call it uh, Noahide uh, laws, and as for the Jews, uh, they, 
not even understanding that uh, there is a nation of Israel of 12 tribes and 10 tribes went into captivity and only one tribe is left behind that is Judah with those who joined him and so they think in those terms uh, we Jews must keep all the laws of God and uh, as for you Gentiles who want to be righteous you should keep only the laws of Noah uh, well that is total ignorance on the part of those who say that because Noah had an awful lot of knowledge and understanding of the laws of God and Adam did and all the men of righteousness that lived in between, they had that and they were being, you know, those laws were being passed on from, from uh, father to son, so to speak, and many of those lived many centuries anyway. And so by the time you get to, to uh, the father of the faith, the father of us all, so to speak, in many ways, Abraham, uh, this is what God said about his servant Abraham. This is what he says to Isaac, his son. He says that, uh, he tells his son that he's going to do uh, many good things for him, uh, and in verse 5 he explains why. He says in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see, it was not an age of ignorance that Abraham lived in, as some believe in the Jewish community, that his father was an idol worshiper, and Abraham grew up in that uh, home, and all these uh, fables that they've invented. No, Abraham grew up in a righteous home. His father was a righteous man, as we can, uh, we'll find out later, as we cover the history of Abraham. A little bit of it, and then uh, everything that followed. And, and all these men, they had that knowledge of the law of God passed on from Adam directly through his son and his grandson and so forth, to Noah and then to Abraham. And remember, Abraham was born in the year 2018, and Noah died in the year 2006, which means only a few years in between. And of course, the son of Noah, Shem, who died, uh, we don't know when he died, we just know that in the year 2159, that's long after Abraham was born, he was still uh, around and having children. And so, we, we are talking about people who were righteous, not just because of very few laws, but because they knew the laws of God. And of course, when Israel stood before Mount Sinai, other laws were added, the ritualistic laws, and those are the laws that the Apostle Paul at all in the New Testament talks about. That the law was added 430 years after Abraham, and he's talking about the ritualistic laws that were given to Israel as a nation because of the marriage relationship with God. And obviously those things were not applicable uh, to the fathers and to the men of old who were very righteous in every other way. And so... Generally speaking, all the laws of God were there, except those that had to do with the Levitical and ritualistic uh, uh, priesthood and uh, ritualistic life of Israel. And so it's important to remember that, that when we talk about, when we see righteousness here, that we should take all these things into account that later on came uh, to our knowledge by the mere fact that we are reading, uh, we are able to read the whole book and therefore have an awful lot of information and put all these things together. And so Noah was a very righteous man, and therefore when God told him, bring me the pure animals, he had no problem understanding that, because that law was from the beginning, and is applicable to every human being on the face of the earth. That's why God told Israel that all those things that he should not eat, it are abominations, which means that all the nations of the earth are eating abominations. That means they are transgressing the laws of God. And has nothing to do uh, whether they are uh, of the community of Israel or not. The law of God has been from the beginning for all of humanity. 
And so we continue to read in verse 3. And seven of each birds of the air, male and female. And it's very interesting. Uh, actually, in verse 2 he begins that concept. Uh, you shall uh, take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. And then he repeats it. Two, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. And it's interesting that in Hebrew he did not use this uh, terminology, male and his female, but he used the very terminology that is used for a husband and wife. Ish veishto. In Hebrew, ish is a man, but also a husband. Uh, and then isha is a woman, but when she's, uh, when you apply this terminology for each other, when a woman says, this is my ish, is she, that means she, she says, this is my husband. And a husband, when he says, this is my isha, or my woman, he says, this is my wife. So this is the terminology that developed later on. And we're still talking in the beginning of the language, where there aren't many words to describe everything. And so it's very interesting that God, later on, where the language was already developed, because we're talking now in the days of Moses, he's the one recording it. He did not choose at that time to say male and female, but husband and wife. And I think he's conveying here something more than just uh, the simplicity of the biology of the male and female, but also the, the fact that it takes a husband and wife, be it in the animal world and be it in human beings, to produce offsprings. In other words, two men cannot do it. Two women cannot do it. So that tells you uh, something about uh, the thinking of God in terms of this concept of two men hanging around together and two women hanging around together and thinking they can do well. Uh, that's contrary, as Paul later on will quote that uh, statement, it is contrary to nature. He says, doesn't even nature teach you? And in specific there he's talking about long hair. He says, nature teaches you that it is a shame for a man to have long hair. And some people in their utter ignorance think that the Savior and the Redeemer of Israel and the God of Israel, the one that came in the flesh, and the one that all call our Redeemer and Savior, had long hair. And he was not a Nazarite. You see, only Nazarites were commanded to have long hair as a sign of submission. And Jesus was not a Nazarite. And therefore, he could not have long hair because for a man who was not a Nazarite, it would be a shame to have long hair. And they depict all the apostles as having long hair. A lot of people, you know, hang around with long hair thinking, well, I'm looking like Jesus Christ. Well, God says very plainly through the Apostle Paul that it is a shame for a man to have long hair. And of course, then you can discuss, you know, what is long hair? You know, that's a different issue. But anyway, we're talking about the law of God, uh, and uh, when we talk about Noah being righteous, when we talk about purity and so forth, uh, you see that the law of God comes into play in so many ways, if you dig deeper into it. And so, that's basically what God is saying here, a man and a woman, that is, of animals and of human beings, shall come into the ark. Uh, and then in verse 4, actually in, uh, in verse 3, also seven of each of birds of the air, in other words, of the clean, since he's going to sacrifice from that, and God wanted to have more of those, uh, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. And verse 4, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And that's the number of judgment, and became known as the number of judgment, forty days and forty nights, or for the number forty. And uh, I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. God is making a point here. 
I am the one in charge. I am the creator. I can do whatever I want. And knowing that God is a righteous God, what he does is not capricious, is not evil, is not wrong. He does it all for a good purpose. And if the creation needs to be destroyed, if human beings need to be destroyed, if his own people need to be destroyed, if his own city needs to be destroyed, he is going to do just that. He makes it very plain. In, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, let's go to Deuteronomy and see what God says about that. In Deuteronomy, God makes it very plain. He's speaking about the history of Israel into the future, where he specifically tells Moses uh, to record uh, something for Israel, for posterity, so they would remember the warning that God gave them from the beginning. What will happen to them if they rebel against God? And so he it says uh, that God gave this song to Moses and told him to uh, rehearse it in the sight of uh, Israel. And in verse, uh, in chapter one, uh, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, or Dvarim in Hebrew, and in verse 1, uh, this is what Moses says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And this is God speaking, and it's not Moses. Moses is just recording it. And in verse, uh, in verse 39, this is what God says, uh, through the, throughout the whole song, God is describing his emotions and feelings about all kind of things, and he's telling about uh, all the evils that uh, his own people have done. Uh, for example, if you can just mention uh, one thing here, in, in verse 16, he says, They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. Moses is speaking here, in specific, that is speaking about the people of God. In verse 17, he says, They sacrificed to demons. Not to God. Imagine that. The children of Israel, who supposedly uh, were the children of righteousness, because they came before Mount Sinai, they received the law. The Jewish, in the Jewish community, they are always described as, of people, as people who, who came to, to the land, that is to Mount Sinai, received the law of God, to became, become holy people, chosen people. And God says they were anything but that. He says they sacrifice to demons, not to God. This is what he says about his people, not only about two or three of them. Many of them were rebellious and finally had to destroy all of them. And then in verse 39 he says, Now see that I, even I, am he. I am God. In other words, there is nobody else. I am the one in charge. And there is no God, he says, beside me. In other words, when he talked about all the idols that Egypt was worshipping, and then all the people of Israel that lived in, in, in Egypt, they also began to worship all those idols. This is the context that he's talking about. You see? The one that was dealing with them is a true God, and all the others are not God. And so that's what he's saying here. You have to understand the context. And there is no Elohim, he says, beside me, because all the others are idols. And then he continues, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And that's the point that God is making here in, uh, in Genesis in chapter 7, as we are reading here. In other words, that when God created man, uh, that is, uh, humanity and uh, all the animals and birds and all that, he meant for life to be in harmony, in unity, in peace, in truth, in righteousness, righteousness among both. Men and the beasts of the field, not devouring, not uh, destruction and all that. 
uh, not being demon-possessed or demon-influenced or having unclean spirits in them. And yet, when they turn in that direction, God reserves the right to destroy what he himself had created. And therefore, he has the right to do it. Uh, some people say, well, you know, uh, what about the innocent ones? Well, God knows exactly what he's doing, and what he does is right. We, we don't understand all things. And so, man kills, but man cannot make alive. You see, but God, when he kills, he can make alive. And so, it's a totally different category. We should never judge God by human standards or by human feelings. As God later on would say, look, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And you might add, my feelings are not your feelings. As the heaven is higher above the earth, that's what he said to Isaiah, you tell the people of Israel that, so are my ways above yours. And we should never judge God from our own point of view. You know, only an arrogant person does that, who thinks that he is greater than God, and can send in judgment of God and do it. And yet people always do it, and especially the people of God have done it an awful lot. When things go wrong for them, first thing they do is accuse God. Point the finger at him. God says, I kill and I make a lie. And being a righteous God, he is not going to kill a righteous man. He is going to kill only those who depart from him. And if he allows the righteous man to die, it's for a good purpose. It's not because of, uh, of the fact that he's evil. He's not. And so he says that not only about men, he says that also about his own people. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy. He's speaking to his own people that when he's going to bring punishment on them, when he's going to cause the enemy to come against them, when he's going to bring destructions upon them, including including the Holocaust, and some people don't like to hear that. You see, God says, I kill and I make alive. Either he does it personally or through other agents. And he has a reason for that, either for causing it or for allowing it or for not delivering his people. And yet, all those who are dead will be brought back to life. And then they are going to have their answers. Why this and why that? But until that time, it's best to reserve judgment. And to begin with, never ever to pass uh, judgment against God. And then he says that also about his own city. In Second Kings, Israel by now is totally into corruption, into evil. They're headed for the, for the destruction that is coming upon them. And many of them, were in, in that state of mind, where God constantly sent the prophets, pleaded with them, but they just were not willing to respond and to come back to God. And so that's what he's saying to uh, Jeremiah to tell uh, his people. He says in, in, uh, in Second King chapter uh, 21 and verse 13, he's speaking about Jerusalem. Well, let's read from verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And that was not the first time that God brought destruction on his own people because of their evil and corruption. And that was not the last time. There were many others after that, and there was a great one in our generation, and there is one that is coming that is even much greater that will pale into utter insignificance in one sense, what happened in the Second World War. Not only to the people of God, but to all of humanity. And this is what God is saying, and it is because he is righteous and we are not. He says in verse 13, And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, just like I brought destruction in Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, 
who was a very wicked king of Israel, and he says about his own city, his own beloved city, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And that's what he thought about Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. And you read the book of Lamentation of Jeremiah, and he described the state of Jerusalem after that. And so that's what God, in essence, is saying here also about all of humanity in the days of Noah. He says that, I will, do, in verse 4, for after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. You see, we didn't make ourselves. We have no right over ourselves, and we have no right to ever complain, why did you allow Johnny to die? We didn't create Johnny. God did. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, and he can, create, he can destroy what he, what he created. And nobody has a right to tell the Creator, why have you done that? Just like he told Jeremiah later on. You're the clay, and I'm the potter. And if I want to destroy the clay because it doesn't fit what I want it to be, I'm going to destroy it and make something new from it. And so that's basically what God did here. Brought utter destruction on all of humanity. And verse 5, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. You see, the, human, the rest of humanity have not. That's why they have been destroyed. And the beasts of the field, and remember as we, as we covered that in the beginning, when God created men and then created the beasts of the field, he told both of them that you're going to eat of every herb. He didn't tell them eat one another. And yet even the animals began to eat one another. So they too had to pay the penalty. And he also made it very plain that if a man sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. And likewise for the animal he said the same thing. That if an animal devours another animal, that animal is going to be put to death. And God had a way of doing it in himself. So by the days of Noah, the whole earth was totally corrupt. Very destructive. Men and beasts. And the birds of the earth. And the demonic spirits that were influencing them and possessing them. But God says, it's about time, as it was later on with Jerusalem, to totally wipe out humanity like a man wipes a dish. In other words, you totally clean the dish, you wash it, and after that, when you look, it, you look at it, it's totally clean, as if there was nothing ever upon it. And that's in essence what God is saying here. And yet in contrast, he said, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And we must learn from that. We must be in that state of mind if we want to be righteous before God. Like Noah, we must be people who are in the habit of obedience to God without yes, if, and but. And that's very important, and of course, it's not easy to develop that state of mind. It's a, it's, it's a progression. It's a process to come to that state of mind where even we see when we see things that seem to be contrary to whatever we think it, you know, it should be, nevertheless we say, not my will, but your will, God. And never ever point the finger, and doesn't make, make any difference how angry we are. We should never allow anger, or anything else, or any warped and perverted emotions and feelings on our part, to accuse our God of unrighteousness. And too many of us are doing it to this very day, especially those who go into trial. The first thing they say, they blame God. Why did he do that to me? And we shouldn't be thinking like that because the righteous does not think that way. 
The righteous knows. If I don't know the details, God knows, and I will trust it in his hands, that whatever he does will be right. And so in verse 6, we continue, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. And so Noah, in other words, 100 years after his sons were born, and that's more or less the time, and probably, you know, several years later when he began to build the ark, because obviously his sons, when they were born, they could not help him. They had to be uh, at least, uh, well, you might say at least 8, 9, 10, and so forth, to begin to really uh, offer any, any help. And so it was uh, the building of the ark was uh, probably uh, maybe 70 or 80 years or 90 years at the most. So Noah with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So it started raining. And then again, he repeats that for sake of emphasis, for those who have missed it before that, and to let people know the law of God is always there. You can never escape it. In verse 8, of clean, of pure animals, of pure animals, he repeats, that are, uh, uh, that is, of pure animals and of animals that are impure, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark, that is, seven of the clean, of the pure, and two of the impure, male and female. Not two males, not two females, but male and female, a man and his wife, as God had commanded Noah. And you see how God constantly repeats that statement. Just later on, you read about Moses. And Moses did as God had commanded Moses. And then later on, in a certain period of time, when Israel was following the laws of God, it says, they had done all that God had commanded them. And that's, uh, this is what we should strive for. That this would be said about us. When a record is being uh, put together about us, we should, we should like to, to be in that category, where it is said about us, and we have done as God had commanded us. So, Pay attention to, to these words that you're reading. You just don't gloss over them. Otherwise, you'll miss the whole point. And uh, in verse 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And by now, they all began to cover uh, the earth. And in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, and it's not talking about the second month of, a, of the sacred year, that is Nisan, which is the first one, that, that came later on only in uh, Exodus 12, well, the Passover, the first Passover, up to now, they were counting by this, what is called at home the civil, as the Jews still do to this very day. Uh, what they call Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year, the beginning of the year. In other words, they begin uh, from the creation. Uh, and the creation was in Tishrei. And that's the first of the month. So this is talking about the second of the month, though some Jewish commentators uh, misunderstood it and they thought that it may be talking about the sa- sacred year, but it's not. It's talking about the beginning of the year when God created heaven and earth, and that's in Tishrei, in September, or October sometimes. Uh, the, seventh, uh, the seventh day of the month, uh, that is the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, all at one time, a total flood. In other words, humanity didn't know what hit them, and the overwhelming majority of them were probably just drowned immediately, and that was mercy killing when you think about it. And the windows of heaven were opened. And also, uh, there were tidal waves. When you have storms, you have uh, action in the ocean and the seas and all that. So you can, you can see in a very short time, a total, a total destruction of all those that were alive. And it didn't take much for all of them. And of course, people didn't know how to swim in those days. Uh, generally speaking, they lived on the, on the land. 
And so they all drowned, including the animals, and it was a mercy killing on the part of God. So God was very gracious to them. And you can see the mercy of God even then, even in the destruction. And the rain, in verse uh, 12, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very, in verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Ham, that is uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, even though Shem is the third one, he's also always mentioned as the first one, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. In other words, God told him a specific day, and that on that very specific day, they had to make it in. In other words, when God gives you something specific, you better do it. Because if you miss that day or the due date, you're in trouble. It will be too late. And that's why later on we read in, in the Psalms, and later on quoted in Hebrews, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. You see, when today is over, that's it. Everything is over for you. And so it's important to remember that. And for us, today is every day. Now, this is, not, this is the day to do it, not say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. In verse 14, They and every beast of its kind, all cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. Verse 15, And they went into the ark to Noah. This is where they came to, because Noah was a deliverer. In other words, Noah was the first savior of mankind. But of course, the mankind that he saved was only his own family, but then all the beasts of the field that uh, were taken with him, if not for Noah and his righteousness, uh, all of them would have been destroyed. So that's why it says they went to Noah, uh, not just they went to the ark. And so God is making a point here, that Noah had to do something with it. Two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life, and also Noah is the one that was given, uh, let's say, specific... Uh, Ability by God directly to be able to bring all those animals, even the wild animals at the time, into the ark. So they came to Noah and God put it in there also in their uh, brain, so to speak, uh, to come toward Noah. Uh, Noah didn't have to go and chase the lions and the tigers, you know, they came to him. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God. And again he says, male and female, always male and female. And that's very important. That's why God always considered that. A total abomination when God departs, that is when man departs from this principle of male and female and become two males and two females or something in between for some of them doing the crossover. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord himself. The Lord shut him in. So God himself descended there on, on, on the boat Either that he did it in person, or he sent an angel to do it. Uh, God made the point to say that he is the one that did it. And so, uh, we'll just leave it at that. Verse 17, Now the flood was on the earth forty days, the waters increased and lifted up the ark. So it took about forty days for the ark to begin to float, and it rose high above the earth. And in the second stage, the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved. So first, it was rising, but still not moving. But now there was so much of it, and the, obviously there was a breeze to keep, to keep it moving, uh, because you need that, otherwise it cannot move. Uh, and so this is the second stage. It started actually moving from that place. And uh, that's what we read here. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So it was under the whole heaven, not just partial, 
uh, flooding, as some in their ignorance have said, because they don't believe the Bible anywhere or don't have any faith and don't have any truth and shouldn't meddle with things that are not of, you know, of, uh, of physical things, and yet they think they are smart enough that they can tell God or tell His Word uh, or tell his, his servants, you know, what is uh, true and what is not, by inventing all kind of lies. And God says very plainly, under the whole heaven were covered, and the waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. How do you cover the mountains, the highest mountains of the earth, unless you have a worldwide catastrophe? And that's what God said exactly. Everything that he created over the whole earth, wherever they were at the time, in the days of Noah, all of them, trees and plants and birds and fish and, and animals, all around the earth, all of them were going to die. So whatever the creation was, that's where it happened. And so the waters were, were about 15 cubits, in other words, about 22 and a half feet above the highest mountains, about, imagine that, about, about, above the Everest, uh, that high, that's how much water was there. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. Total destruction on the earth. And, and then verse 22, All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. Uh, in other words, well, this is what you, you read here also in the Hebrew text, but in the, the Septuagint, which was copied from a previous uh, uh, Hebrew manuscript before the present Masoretic manuscript, uh, that word spirit was not there. I don't know why, and later on it was injected there. But they understood, uh, probably because of, uh, of a proper understanding that they injected this word. Uh, the breath of the spirit, in other words, the breath is what you breathe. That's called neshama in Hebrew, but neshama is what you breathe. You see, what you breathe is not your life. Uh, you still need a spirit. And uh, it's not enough to have just the breath. But the breath of life means that you have the breath and also life. And for life you have to have spirit. And so you have the breath of the spirit of life. Uh, all those who had it, which means both man and beast, as we mentioned earlier, in another context, that not only man was given a spirit, that's called the spirit in man, because God formed it, but also the beasts of the field were given a spirit. That's how they function. Uh, you cannot function unless you have a spirit in you. And uh, this is what they had. Now, of course, their spirit is different than ours. And as I mentioned earlier, we're talking about the context of the angels and the counterpart in the physical world. Uh, the angels are spirit beings, and the animals are a counterpart of the angelic beings. They have a spirit in them, but they are not spirit beings. They're just physical. And that's, what had, that's how demons are able to possess not only man, who has a spirit in him, but also the beasts of the field who have a spirit in them, or also wouldn't be able to possess them. That's how uh, animals become vicious, and that's why God had to destroy them, because they had a spirit in them, and, animal, and uh, demons possess those spirits or influence those spirits, and cause them to begin to devour one another, including devouring men. And so that's why we read here, and all those uh, in whose nostrils was the breath, all the spirit of life, all that was on the, on the dry land, died. And so in verse 23, so he destroyed all living things, the one who created all things, he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both men and cattle, creeping thing, and the bird of the earth. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And that's basically what God wanted to make all of us understand. That 
ultimately speaking, unless we obey the laws of God, unless we learn from the lessons of those who were in the days of Noah that were totally disobedient, both men and field, and, and the beasts of the field, that is, uh, all of us are going to be dead. Just like God destroyed them, if we insist on walking in that direction, as he did with his own people that he brought out of Egypt with signs and wonders and mighty acts, he allowed or caused all of them to die in the wilderness, and only two of them made it into the land. Not even Moses and Aaron made it into the land, but Joshua and Caleb made it into the land. And all the rest died because even Moses and Aaron, with one act only that was mentioned, rebelled against God. When God told Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, instead of that, they went and spoke to the people, and he, and he told them, You blasphemed me, and God is not a, a respecter of persons. And so it's important for all of us to realize that. So it's, it's a very, very sobering story, and that's why later on we read about Noah. As in the days of Noah, this is what God is describing at the time of the coming of the Messiah, of the Redeemer of Israel. We read that in Matthew 24, many other places. As in the days of Noah, people just did their own thing and generally corrupt things, and all their thoughts were evil. So it's going to be the day of the Messiah when he comes. Humanity is going to be so corrupt and evil that unless uh, there would be few righteous men alive uh, who will continue to serve God, God is going to destroy the whole earth. But obviously God uh, is going to preserve uh, righteous men because he said that he would. They're going to be the elect, and for their sake, for their sake, just like for the sake of Noah, he's going to save the, the family of men. And so, uh, we should, remember, we should uh, take that into mind and think about it very seriously. And so, we read in verse 24, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And so, we are finishing with chapter 7, and I believe we are reaching the end of the tape. So, I'll say again, greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Until next time, where we shall begin with chapter 8. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide website at address www. .biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.